Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I don't really need to tell you that TV in the 90s, and especially TV late in the evening in the 90s, was wild. You all know TV uh, had a problem. Sitcoms and dramas were expensive to create, and there had not yet been this thing that we now know as reality TV. And so networks were faced with this problem of how do we find programming that is cheap to make, that people will watch, and we don't have to pay a lot for, and it's going to take up a lot of our time. And so there was this genre of TV shows in the late 90s that was, seemed to be on all the time. It was the shows that some of us look back fondly and remember, things like American Gladiators, Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. Unsolved Mysteries. These are shows that are all very cheap to make and take up an hour-long time slot. One of these shows has gained a cult following in the age of the internet. And that, the name of that show is Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. You might remember this as the show with the dude from Star Trek. Commander Riker used to host this show, and the show would tell these stories, and maybe they were ghost stories, or maybe they were strange coincidences, or, or some weird thing that happened. And then at the end of the show, they would tell you three or four of these stories, and then he would tell you which ones of them were true and which ones that he made up. Um, if you are one of the Zoomers in our church, you might not know this show, but you know the montage of, we made it up. Total fiction, a complete farce. We made it up. The video that sometimes circles on the internet where they cut all of his admissions of the lies that they had told. You would find out at the end of the show whether they're a fact or fiction. This morning, we're gonna look at Psalm 48. And as we look at Psalm 48, the psalmist is going to paint the picture that Jerusalem is this amazing capital city, that it is this city that rivals Nineveh, the city that rivals Babylon in all of its glory. But here's the thing. It's a little bit of a fiction because even at its peak, Jerusalem was not a sprawling metropolis. And the psalmist is going to tell us all about how great Mount Zion is, how it is this great mountain. Spoiler alert, it's not that big. So what this psalm does is not just create a fiction. What this psalm does is asks us to do something we don't normally do when we think about our faith. It asks us as Christians to use our imagination You see, what happens in your life and mine is we normally divorce our imagination from our faith. And when we do that, when we divorce our imagination from our faith, we miss out on the comfort and hope that we can have from the presence of God. We get so caught up in the cold and real facts about our faith that we don't use the eyes of faith to look around and see the world around us, to see our situations in a different light. 
So what I want you to do this morning as we read this psalm is I want you to join me in trying to see the world the way that this psalmist sees the world, seeing it with something other than your eyes. So if you're able, uh, please stand as I read Psalm 48. If you'd like to uh, follow along, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me, or if you have your own copy of the scriptures, uh, you are welcome to read those. Let's hear Psalm 48. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the great city, or the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. And as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. City Church, is the word of God written nearly 2,500 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a part of the family of Levi, the Levites who served at the temple. And it seems that the, the Korites, the sons of Korah, were the ones that arranged all of the music. And so as we read through the Psalms, uh, besides David, the sons of Korah, or even Korah himself, are the most common author of this book besides David. And this psalm begins as a way that almost every psalm does. It begins with an invitation for us to praise God. Praise God for all of his faithfulness. Praise God for his name is great and greatly to be praised. But where the sons of Korah direct our eyes, where they tell us to look and find the praiseworthiness of God is where this psalm really starts to get interesting. Because the author invites us to lift up our head as if we were in Jerusalem and look around the city, this great city. Lift up your heads and look at Zion. Zion, the name that the people of Israel had for Jerusalem and the temple. It's religious name. And they sing praises about how wonderful and lifted up and exalted this city is because of God. Now, if you don't know anything about Jerusalem and you just begin to read this psalm, you may get the impression that Jerusalem has a lot going for it, apparently. I mean, it seems like it's this big tide. It seems like there's this giant mountain in the middle of this huge city. That's got to be amazing. But here's the problem. 
Jerusalem at its height was only about three miles across the entire city. I mean, that's the distance between, you, you could get to Bandit Coffee and it would be farther than a walk across Jerusalem. And not only that, Mount Zion's elevation was only 2,500 feet. It wasn't even the biggest mountain in the neighborhood. If you went to Mount Zion and looked around and you looked a mile and a half away, by the way, outside of the city, you'd see the Mount of Olives. And in order to see the top of the Mount of Olives from Mount Zion, you would have to look up. And so the psalmist tells us, this mountain is amazing. It's like the great north. This is great. What's he doing? He's asking us to see something that we can't see with our eyes. Because Zion is magnificent. Zion is beautiful. The city of God, city of Jerusalem is wonderful, but not because the mountain's really tall. Not because the city's really big. The beauty and wonder of Zion comes from the presence of God in the city. And the psalmist looks out and that's what he sees. He sees that the presence of God changes this lowly city into a great city. The presence of God makes this a city of refuge and a place of worship. It's the presence of God that changes this lowly capital into the joy of all nations. The psalmist is really clear about this in verse 3. He says, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. It's not the tower that is the fortress. It's not the arrow knocks that the people can shoot their arrows down through that is the stronghold, the safety, the protection. Rather, it is the presence of God that is that protection. It's not their military defenses. It's not the fact that they have the high ground. Rather, the real hiding place in Zion is the presence of God. Beloved, we are very, very well discipled by our screens, both large and small. And as we look at the world with the eyes that we have and the eyes that have been trained by our feeds, what quickly grows in us is a low-grade anxiousness. I don't remember who said this. this I, I heard this somewhere towards the end of 2020. That awareness without agency creates anxiety. Think about that. Think about how that has played out in our lives over the past few years. Our awareness of a situation, because it comes on the news, because it comes through our feed, because we see an explainer thread somewhere on it, our awareness gets perked up. But a lot of these things are things that we can't do anything about. I mean, this is playing out right now with the topic of monkeypox, right? I don't know if you've heard, but monkeypox is apparently a thing again. And so we, we go and we watch the news or we read our phones or we get emails and they're telling us about monkeypox. But here's the problem. What can you do about monkeypox? You, you can't do anything. You, you personally can't do anything. 
Maybe you'll buy less exotic pets. But you have no real agency in it. So what does that create in you? What does that create in me? Oh man, I hope it, hope it stays in New York City. I don't want monkeypox. That sounds pretty bad. I don't want my grandparents to get, I have a friend in New York City. Miss D lives in New York City. I hope Miss D doesn't get monkeypox. And what happens as our minds are aware that there's a problem, but we have no agency to do anything about that problem, it creates anxiety in us. Well, here's what the psalmist is doing. He's inviting us to see the world in a completely different way. He's inviting us to see that the presence of God radically changes the world and our lives. So that when we become aware of something, we don't have to default to anxiety, but rather we look up to find the presence of God. And he grounds this in a very certain event for the people who would have heard this song when they first began to sing it at the temple. Because this psalm was written in the time of Hezekiah, the king of Israel. Now, I know that Hezekiah is like one of those names that you're like not totally sure if I made that up. And I'm like pulling a fast one on you. But he's real. In fact, he shows up in Chronicles and he was the king when Isaiah was doing most of his ministry. And Hezekiah has the distinction of being one of the few good kings of Israel besides David and Solomon. And Hezekiah lived in Jerusalem when Assyria came through and destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. Assyria came through and decimated all 10 of those northern tribes. And they were on their way to do the exact same thing to Jerusalem. But the, the king of Assyria, Tiglath Pileser III, for you history nerds, uh, decided that he was going to show mercy to Hezekiah and Jerusalem by only laying siege to the city. And so if you were an Israelite who was from Jerusalem or from anywhere around Judah, you would have fled into the city. And Hezekiah looks out, looks down from Mount Zion on the plains around the city. And what does he see? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Assyrians completely surrounding the city. And what does the king of Assyria do? He keeps sending these taunting letters to Hezekiah. Hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to knock down the walls. Hey, if you don't do this, And so Hezekiah surveys the field around them. He sees hundreds of thousands of Assyrian marauders, a horde waiting to tear down Zion. And what does Hezekiah do? He goes to the center of Zion, to the temple, and he prays. He prays. And that night, the night after he prays, the angel of the Lord goes through the Assyrian camp and kills 185,000 Assyrians that very night. So the Assyrians decide that they're going to go home. That, you know, 185,000 dead soldiers, zero dead Israelites, This is not a good situation. Let's pack up and go home. To give you context, that's three times more soldiers than America lost in the entire history of the Vietnam War, lost in a single night. 
This happened because Hezekiah looked at the world around him and saw something greater than the marauding hordes. He saw the presence of God. And the writer of this song, the sons of Korah, tells the people of Israel, remember that? Remember with what your eyes told you is that you were doomed? And then the king went in and prayed and all of a sudden you weren't doomed? That's how you need to see the world. That's how you need to look at things around you. Now, here's my guess. My guess is that most of us have never lived in a city that has been under siege in wartime. Probably. But here's what you are all well familiar with. The problems that you can see clearly with your own two eyes in your life. The ones that are in front of your face day after day, the things that you can't stop thinking about, the things that gnaw at the edge of your mind when you try to sleep. Whatever problems these are, whether they're relationship problems, financial problems, problems with your children, wherever you find that thing that you look at with your eyes and you don't know what you're going to be able to do about it, what do you do with those things? those things that you see day after day. Well, here's what most of us do. If we're being honest, what most of us do is we turn to our tried and true, our trusted methods of dealing with these things. And so we hustle to wrestle control in a situation that we have no control over. We scheme and plot to make sure that we get our way and our ways are advanced. Or maybe you don't try to fight it like that. Maybe you try to run away. Maybe you use pleasure. Maybe you try to distract yourself with alcohol or sex. Something to take your mind off of what you see right in front of you day by day. Something to just just distract you just for a moment. I'm saying that you deal with these things this way because I know that's how I do. I either fight with the own strength of my control or I've run away and I'm distracted by pleasure and just try not to think about them. But the sons of Korah are inviting us to something else. They're inviting us to imagine a world that we cannot see. Imagine a world that we can't see. This isn't some pretend strategy. This isn't holy dungeons and dragons. But it's also not speaking to the laws of attraction and saying the good things that the universe would manifest them back to us. No, this is remembering the faithfulness of God to us in the past and envisioning what that might look like as we cast our eyes to the future and we look at the difficult situations around us. God is our refuge. We just need to expand our imagination Because the idols of control and pleasure quickly capture our attention. Mark Sayers, he's a pastor and a theologian in Australia. And Mark Sayers put it this way. He said, when anxiety rises, the first thing our brain turns off is our imagination. When our anxiety rises... Our imagination and creativity get turned off. And what the psalmist is inviting us to is something else. 
As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord our host, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever and ever. The city is not great because of its defensive military strategies. The city is great because God is present there. God's past faithfulness to his people is proof of his future faithfulness to them and to us. God is greater than every problem that we can see with our eyeballs. You believe that? I mean, I know like it's church. And when I ask, do you believe that? You're supposed to reflexively say, yes, I understand that. But I want you to think for a second. Think about that problem that gnaws at the edge of your mind. Is the faithfulness of God bigger than that? I don't know about you, but I struggle to believe that practically. I struggle to believe that because the problem clouds my vision. It shuts down my imagination. I cannot imagine a way that God could show faithful in this moment. I just see all the ways that this is going to go wrong. And so what the sons of Korah do, thankfully, is they give us practice. Our souls aren't practice in this sort of holy imagination, but they show us a way to be practiced in it. In verses 9 through 11, they give us a means to learn how to do this. And the answer is actually kind of simple. We have to practice meditating on the reality of God's presence. Think about God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. I've been telling you guys, this is like all over the Psalms. Here we are again. God has been faithful to you covenantally despite all of your struggles, despite all of my struggles. He has kept his promises to you despite your behavior, despite my behavior. The presence of God is all around us. His name and reputation are the very source of beauty itself. His actions, the actions of his right hand are filled with righteousness. He is a God who will bring judgment one day so that all the injustices that we have experienced and that others have experienced on this earth will be made right one way or the other. The sons of Korah invite us to say, God has done this before. God will do this again, to rehearse again and again to ourselves what it is that the gospel means, that God is really present with you. God is really present here this morning in this church, not because we have done the right thing, not because we have invoked him in the proper ways and said the right things in our church service so far, but rather because he chooses to be. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the message of Jesus. God is transcendent and independent. He is greater than you and I could ever imagine. And he is wholly free to do whatever he wants. He is the only being in the universe that is free in that way. And so we cannot invoke his presence by some ritual or incantation. Rather, the God of the universe, the transcendent God that stands outside of all space and time, chooses to be present with you. 
The God of the universe not only chose to be present with you and present with us here this morning in a real and tangible way, he chose to enter earth. He chose to come as Jesus. He chose to show up in Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And not only that, in order to fulfill our side of the covenant, he chose to die outside the gates of that city. And he does this all by his choice so that he might be present with you. When we immerse ourselves in that story, when we repeat that to ourselves over and over again, our imagination for what God might do, the ways that God might redeem and rescue us and change the stories that have marked us and the habits that have beset us, when that story is rehearsed over and over, it grows our imagination. It grows our trust. It grows our hope. Not that our problems will just go away. Not that we just put it out of our mind, but rather we begin to assign a new meaning to these stories through the holy imagination of the gospel. Things will not always be the way that things are now. And so finally, the sons of Korah invite us to put this into practice. The eyes of faith, the holy imagination, go out and look at the world with those eyes. They tell the people to, to go walk around the city of Jerusalem, go count its towers, go see how great the walls are, not because the walls are the tallest walls ever, but because God is present in the city. Well, I don't know about you. I don't have the money to go to Jerusalem today or next week. So how do we do this? How do we practically do what the sons of Korah ask of us? Well, one way you do that is by keep showing up. Because if you notice the things that we're being told to remember, the world that we're being told to imagine is the world that we rehearse every Sunday here at City Church. It's the world that we rehearse because our worship is shaped as covenant renewal. We confess our sins as we are invited into God's presence. We're reminded of his forgiveness to us. We rehearse our faith again. We hear from his word. We gather at his table. We commune with him in a way that he is truly present for. And then he sends us out with his blessing. Participation in worship undisciples us from what our phones disciple us to. And we do that. We get that. That change comes from the presence of God and practicing that presence over and over again by the weekly retelling of the drama of redemption and restoration. When we begin to let that form us instead of our feeds, it grows our holy imagination. What might God do? How might God be at work in this dark corner of my life? How might God make justice roll down like a mighty river from the mountain? How might God, how might God use someone like me? Confession, 
communion, calling. This is not only the rhythm of city church, but this is why we encourage and give away all those copies of the Daily Prayer Project. Because you know what the, the rhythms of the Daily Prayer Project are? It's the same thing. It's rehearsing the gospel back to ourselves. There's a thousand other devotionals and a lot of them, most of them are probably really good because all of they're doing is teaching us to rehearse that story back to ourselves again and again, that our imagination, that our eyes might be opened, not to the things that we see, but the things that are unseen. And so the sons of Korah invite us to be shaped by God's story to be shaped by his faithfulness and be less anxious when the armies surround us. Not because the walls are high and not because the mountain is actually that big, but because God is present. May God give us eyes of faith to see his steadfast, never failing love when everything that we can see with our eyeballs says that we're in danger and threatens to overwhelm us. May we see what God is doing in an unseen way. Let's pray.